Hi, welcome to Christ Covenant Sermon Talkback. This podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Atlanta, where our pastors and members dig deeper into the sermon and its text together. Our goal is to consider new questions and observations while looking at the passage so that we might more practically apply God's word to our life. If you have a question for our pastors, please feel free to engage our text to pastor line at 404-465-1737. Or if you'd like to find more resources from our church like this one, please visit ChristCovenant.com forward slash resources. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our sermon talk back. Well, I'm joined today, um, man, two, two, of the, two of the Christ Covenant greats, <laughs> Barrett Fisher, Jordan Coughlin, wow. uh, champions of the Blake Bowl. Uh, <laughs> yes, we are. Happily. Uh, you know, Wait, some place, did you, oh, you didn't win. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I lost. Oh, okay. Second I lost. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just couldn't remember. I lost. Yeah. If, if Will Carlisle would have had his running shoes though, guys, totally different game. We're referencing a football game at Stafford Street. Totally different game. Um, but, you know, congratulations, guys. I'm sure you all, you know, feel better about yourselves and stuff. We do. Um, you know, yep. you need if that's where you get your identity from, then, you know, it's... Uh, nope, but I do derive some pleasure in being... <laughs> yeah, 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 you don't have to go that far. I'm glad y'all have that. I'm glad the Lord gave you that. But, um, all right, so yesterday we had a, an interesting... I mean, it's an interesting passage, right? Um, it's kind of a famous passage, mm-hmm. the beginning of John 8. Mm. Um, and I think I remember like knowing that passage and kind of loving that passage just for the tenderness of Christ in it. Um, but then like later on figuring out or reading, you know, I could, maybe my like children's Bible didn't have the note about how it wasn't included. And then like I got a little older and got like a real study Bible or something. And there was right. this note that it was not supposed to be concluded in the Bible. I had no idea what to do with that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So I, I do think like a great place to begin the conversation today would be to talk about the Bible. Like how did that even happen that this passage that's not supposed to be in the Bible got included in the Bible? Like mm. what, what does that mean? And we talked about a little bit yesterday in the sermon, but we can take a, a bit of a deeper dive. Well, I think it's an important thing to, for, especially for new Christians to understand that uh, this is okay. It's actually good. It's actually good for us to engage in these discussions. You know, you, you made kind of the comment yesterday that it's, we, we like to believe that this is just a book that our grandmother gave us and you know, it, it is what it is. It's the word we got. But like when you, when you study it and this passage being a great example, it's like, wow, this, this actually takes me engaging my intellect and, and working through this. And that's not mm. a lack of belief. That's not you doubting, you know, whether Christianity is true or not. Like th- this is what God calls us to do, like engage with this. And I mean, as we're going to talk about, it, I think there's compelling reasons, namely the spirit confirming this, that ah, this, this is the word of God. It can well, be trusted. And I do think too, like diving back into the actual story of the church, you know, yeah. it's kind of interesting too. We, we tried right. to do that a little bit yesterday. Um, but yes, I mean, the Bible is different than like a book of Mormon or a Quran. Um, and, and it's also different than like, uh, you know, writings of Hindu. I mean, so 
it's kind of like in in one in in some world religions you have like a single source kind of holy book mm-hmm. in other religions you have like multi-source there's not you know a holy book per se but you have holy writings um or sacred writings and like in the case of you know hinduism or whatever those could you know go on forever mm-hmm. the bible's kind of interesting because it is it is a one source but it was developed over time by a lot of different authors um and that that is what makes it so interesting. Um, I actually think it is one of the things that makes it incredibly compelling. Um, but you have to think about that. You have to you have to kind of get there. I don't know. What are your thoughts, Barrett? Yeah. So, you know, we served in the Muslim world for a time and uh, studied a little bit about Islam. You referenced the Quran, and so it's interesting to see. I, I contrast the Bible in my mind with the Quran. So it's interesting to see how the Quran came about. Basically, this guy, Muhammad, went into a cave one day and supposedly the angel Gabriel appeared to him and just dictated this revelation to uh, to Muhammad. And so it's one man who's being given a revelation of the of the the entire holy book. And so he goes out of the cave and actually he was illiterate. And so he finds a scribe to actually write down the words of the Quran. Um, And so. Very, very different mm. how the Bible was written. Uh, but I think sometimes we, maybe we have, maybe some of us have this idea that it was written in the same way the Quran was, that it was kind of like yeah. God was giving these revelations to certain individuals at certain times and they were writing them down or whatever. But it's it's really not how the Bible came about. Um, you know, the Bible was written over like a 1500 year period and there's 40 plus authors of the Bible. And yet one of the amazing things about the Bible is that there is a coherent and cohesive story that goes all the way from Genesis to Revelation, Mm -hmm. which you could say, well, of course there's a coherent story. If you know the story, you're going to write like towards the story and only the ones that maintain that cohesiveness are the ones that are included in the story. Uh, However, the interesting thing about the Bible is that it's so detailed, right? Mm -hmm. It's incredibly detailed. And so you were kind of sharing something about the tree. And I think, I think that was interesting as an example of how detailed it is. Um, So I I don't know if you want to go there. Yeah. Well, and I kind of talked about the C.S. Lewis quote yesterday, like why the scribbling, right? Like it's not just like it's not it's not and and C.S. Lewis is obviously like a good source. I mean, he he studied medieval literature, so he's like read tons of myths and legends and tales, and and he's comparing. I mean, actually, that's one of his um, cases for believing the Bible. It's 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 written. It's too detailed in form to be myth. If you if you read nonfiction, okay, or, or rather, if you read fiction, if you read myth or legend. Um, like read Beowulf, right? Or read like the Odyssey, right? <clears throat> it's not like the Bible. Now, if you read, you know, I've just been reading a lot of John Steinbeck. I've been on this huge John Steinbeck. Yes. If you read Steinbeck, it is more detailed. Like he kind of will include, you know, modern novel, the modern novel includes detail, but that kind of literature didn't really develop until the 1700s, 18th century, mm. right? And so it's kind of a relatively new form of, fiction it's a it's a relatively new form of that kind of literature and so to your point like you know either the bible would have had to have been written like the gospels in particular 
you know, either the gospel writers would have had to invent a new literary form that wouldn't be repeated for another like 1700 years, or they're giving a report of actual things that happened. And in a sense, not that they're not drawing on things that they understood from Hebrew literature or whatever, but I don't know that they're knowing the whole story. Right. Um, and so like the, the, you know, the example that I gave, like, you know, the Old Testament talks about like the tree of the world, the great tree of the world, Daniel, Ezekiel, there's this tree that unites heaven and earth, right? Um, and there's other imagery used for this, like the staircase, right? Remember Jacob's ladder, right? Mm-hmm. The, the staircase between heaven and earth, this thing that is going to unite heaven and earth, it's often described as the tree. I mean, obviously we see even the tree of life imagery, both at the end of the Bible and at the beginning of the Bible. So that imagery kind of comes throughout the, the, the Bible. What would ultimately be the tree of the world, mm. the tree that unites heaven and earth, the tree that brings heaven and earth together? Mm. And of course, it is this bloody Roman cross, mm. the tree of the world. The, right. the cursed is the one who dies on the tree. Mm. Um, well, you would never have come up with that. Like right. if you were, if there was this massive image working through your literary work and and uh, it was the thing that was going to unite heaven and earth, like you you wouldn't come up with that story. It would be this grand tree, you know, where somebody got some great revelation or some I- image. It wouldn't be where the protagonist dies. But that, of course, is what we see in our story. So I think to your point, like when you when you really take a deep dive on the Bible, it's it's almost it's like if, if this were not inspired, if God was not like telling us this grand story, you just can't. I mean, to the C.S. Lewis point, like it, you, it is hard to fathom. It's almost impossible to fathom that someone would have just come up with this. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you, and then you couple that with how it actually moved people in world history. And again, a very yeah. different way than like, I mean, what is Islam in a sense other than, I mean, when you really understand Islam, it's it's kind of a military movement, you know? The Quran is less important, really, than the military movement that Muhammad spawned that ultimately swept through. I mean, Quran advanced by the sword, right? Right. Um, and it advanced very far by the sword. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but, but why, how does Christianity advance um, and, and there's no central culture to it. Um, you know, it, it manifests itself in many different ways in many different cultures. It is incredibly different than Quran. It, it, it advances through faith, through belief, through people believing the story uh, that is being told. And so I, I, anyway, the fact that that was put together by 40 different authors in three different countries, three different continents over a 1500 year period. Yeah. It, it, the only way I can make sense of that is if like something bigger was going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously we believe that that was the Holy Spirit. That was the word of God. That was God himself inspiring this word. Yeah. So then, uh, you know, then you come to passages like this where it says in our Bibles that the earliest manuscripts did not include this passage. And I, I think at first, sometimes it can be like a little jolting, like, oh, well, if this wasn't included, like, you how know, do I know that else, anything should be? Yeah. Else? What else yeah. did they add in there and and all that? But it, but it's interesting because the early church really had to struggle through, number one, 
who is Jesus? And a lot of the like early councils were trying to struggle with who is Jesus? Who is he in terms of fulfilling a lot of the Old Testament prophecies? And what can Jesus do for us? And and so they were struggling through all these things and it was a long process. So for this to for this story to be included, when, when you have all that background, for this story to be included in the 400s, it's not it's not as crazy as as it may sound upon you know initial hearing. Yeah, I mean the Athanasius Easter letter uh, is, and I'm forgetting the date right now, but I think it's like 360s, you know, or, or maybe a little bit earlier than that, but somewhere in there. But anyway, somewhere around there, and then obviously there was other lists of the canonized New Testament into the 200s that were basically complete. I mean, you know, Hebrews was a spurious text. Um, Revelation, well, no, no, not Revelation. Hebrews, what was some of the, J- James, James, Jude, yeah. Jude. were yeah. some of the other spurious texts. So anyway, the, the point I'm trying to make here is, um, you know, the church was recognizing a canon, you right. know, I mean, the, the whole canonization debate, I've heard preachers say, I heard a preacher that's a local prominent preacher in our area, and I won't say who because it'd be embarrassing to him, but like, uh, I mean, this is a very well-respected guy, and I heard him say, um, you know, the early church did not have the scripture until like the fourth century, which like something like a truer thing has an, a, an untruer thing has never been said. Like, right. Um, first of all, like the earliest church was meditating on the Old Testament passages. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first century church, once these letters were being written, which is as early as the 50s. Right. These these letters are being passed around and used in Christian worship as early as the fifties, yeah. and then all, obviously all the way through. So if if that's the way somebody has told you, I mean, Dan Brown has said some of these things. If y'all right. read like the Da Vinci Code, which yep. is amazing to read on a train yeah, in yeah. Europe, <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, but anyway, some of these things have been said. No, the the the, the actual history. Um, that is like widely known that any respectable scholar, even a non-Christian scholar, would uh, would say if they had any notion of this was no that that these texts were widely being passed around, widely being copied, mm-hmm. and the accuracy between them was amazing. Now, likely, as I was saying yesterday, along with the New Testament letters and the New Testament books that we have, there were other things. Well, we know there was other things. There was other letters. Um, the book of Hermes, yeah. you know, was one of these, uh, the Didache. I mean, there were other like books that were being, you know, talked about used in Christian worship that were ultimately not canonized. And we can talk about that too, if we, we want to, why and why not. Um, but this was likely one of those things that Luke had written, not maybe intending it to be in his gospel. And it was John's story. I believe that Luke was a ferocious uh, uh, voracious or voracious or whatever we're here. He was a he was a fastidious interviewer, and he had interviewed John. He had recorded this story. It was known as John's story, and that's why later it was connected to John's gospel, um, even though it was not in John's initial manuscript. And I think that's the best way we can understand this story. Mm-hmm. It's not that the story didn't happen. It's not that it doesn't tell us things about Jesus. It doesn't meet the standard of inspiration and canonization that you know we would feel comfortable with in terms of like creating a doc, uh, you know, a doctrine, um, or like saying verifiably this is the word of the Lord. But I still think, and the reason that I preached it, I still think it's helpful yeah. in terms of understanding the ministry of Christ. Yeah, for yeah. the for the instruction and the edification of the church, it has some very 
good things that are very consistent with other parts of scripture. Right. And so Jesus, you know, saying things like, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. You know, that is, um, that is very consistent with, with Jesus, with the other writings about Jesus and things that he said. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And one last word just on this whole balance of, you know, inspiration and canonization and, authority. I, I think it's it's not unlike to me uh us wrestling with God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And that, you know, as we we have a responsibility to engage with the things we're talking about, like how this came to be and how we can trust it. And there are very valid reasons, I think credible reasons for us to believe, yeah, this is this is what they read. Um but then there's also this uh God's sovereign hand over all of it, right? Like that there is a faith that I have that these are the words of God. Why? Well, because he says they're the words of God, one, but then two, I've read them and and the spirit has confirmed that in me. Yeah, and Calvin and, talks about the self-authenticating nature exactly. of the Bible. Yeah. Yep, yep, B.B. Warfield makes a similar point. Yeah, so I just think like, just last word, like if you're wrestling with these things, like I said at the beginning, it's good to wrestle come to us, ask questions. There's great resources, um, to help you think through it as well as don't forget, you know, this, this element of if God is truly sovereign, if he's bigger, uh, than we can ever imagine, then could it be that our limited minds, um, are limited in our capacity to like work out every single detail, you know, to get to a point of, Oh, okay. All these things exactly match up. Uh, Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking about God's revelation of himself. Right. Like th- that 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 phrase, God's revelation of himself is an amazing thing to even think about. That how does God, uh, the master creator, sovereign of the universe, spoke and revealed himself to, you know, mere mortals like ourselves. So, yeah. a lot more to say there. Michael Kruger, January 22nd, <laughs> mark your calendar. DA Carson, who's done a lot of this works preaching for us. I don't know that he's like, um, we should give DA like a, or I should say Don. We should give Don like a really hard text uh, and uh, and let him blow our minds with it. Um, okay, so um, let's talk about the, a point that I made. So Jesus noticed the victim, right? He gave, um, he gave, uh, I would say honor and dignity to the oppressed. Mm-hmm. Okay. We all recognize there's oppressed. And obviously I'm kind of, you know, if, if you didn't pick up on it, for those of you who are listening, I'm I'm kind of, I'm speaking to this whole like critical theory, oppressor, oppressed conversation that's happening in the wider culture. Um, So as Christians, we understand opp- that the people are oppressed. We understand the outcast. We understand a victim. We understand all of these things. And I think that our posture as Christians should be to give honor and dignity and value and love and respect um, and to, to these people. So, I mean, in that, and, and in that case, and understanding people's stories, understanding why people, you know, have made decisions that they've made, that is where I think that things like critical theory, at least these kinds of conversations happening, could be helpful. Of course, we want to give dignity to those who have been oppressed or to the poor. Where I think critical theory takes like an unchrist-like turn 
Um, and I want to be careful in how I say that, an unchrist-like turn, a, a turn beyond, I think, the character and the posture of Jesus, is when that oppression itself or victimhood itself or, uh, you know, whatever it is, you know, uh, outcastness itself becomes an another point of self-righteousness and self-centeredness. Right. Uh, where that somehow just the 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 idea of being a victim gives someone uh, this sense of like self righteousness or you know you know authority um, that uh, that ends up being a way a means by which or self centeredness that they can look down on others uh, and so that's where this becomes kind of like well how did that happen right right and and the the way that I think it happens is because secular humanism is the disrespectful child of Western Christianity. Western mm. Christianity has given the world this ethic, and one of the ethics that I think Western Christianity has given the world is to care for the needy and to care for the oppressed and to care for the broken. Mm. Um, but it's not to make the brokenness or the neediness a point of uh, self-centeredness or self-righteousness. Yeah. Uh, and, and in this like strange turn of events, that's what the disrespectful child's uh, secular humanism has done with the ethic that its Christian parents have taught it. So I want to talk about that whole thing, mm. but maybe we should just start with like, is secular humanism like the daughter or the son mm. of Western Christianity? And I'm arguing, yes, it is. It, it could only have been born out of Christianity. Like, you couldn't have gotten secular humanism out of Islam, and Barrett can obviously mm. speak to this. Mm. Mm. Um, there's not like a concern for human rights in Islam. There's not a concern for women in Islam. There's not like the the things that like has become true of secular humanism mm. wouldn't come out of a pantheistic uh, understanding of the world. It wouldn't come out of an Eastern understanding of the world. It it, it could only have come from the West, uh, where Christianity obviously created the philosophy and the dominant worldview for more than a thousand years. Mm -hmm. So w this is a very interesting point that you made in your sermon yesterday. And um, immediately I thought of uh, something that John Piper writes about in his book, Future Grace. He, he, he talks about the contrast between strong pride and weak pride. So strong pride is like, we all know strong pride. It's just, you know, that I'm the best pride. baseball player. Yeah, I'm the best. Uh, yeah. So I won the Blake Bowl. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jordan and I'll have to wrestle through that later. But uh, so strong pride is basically saying, look how much I've accomplished. Weak pride, on the other hand, is look how much I've suffered. Yeah. yeah. The weak pride, the, the problem with weak pride is it's very subtle and it kind of seems noble on the face of it. On the face of it. Yeah. But the end of it is what? Still pride. It's self. Right. It's a pointing back to self. And I think that's what the disrespectful child of Western Christianity has done is it's kind of taken some of the good parts of Christian, you know, care for the oppressed, care mm -hmm. for the downcast. But what it's done is it's 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 put the focus back on self. Humanism. And it, and yeah. it hasn't put the focus rightly on God and on you know, that, that he frees us of that pride to now we can serve others and we can serve the Lord. Right. Uh, but instead it just puts the focus back, back on the oppressed or on the downcast. That's right. That's yeah, right. I found it such a powerful point. I mean, even in reflecting on my own life and I encourage you know, anybody listening to this to reflect on your own life, like how much 
of my thinking, the way that I see the world is framed through victimhood Mm. and, and that I, that I'm, I'm a victim of my circumstances, of trials, of suffering, of this other oppressive group over here. Uh, but the problem with that, to your point, Barrett, like the, <laughs> the problem with glorifying victimhood is at some point you either stay there or you, you get out of it. But then once you get out of it, you don't have that sense of pride anymore. Like right. if I, if I'm not right. a victim, if right. I'm ever, like, what, do, what do I do? Mm. Um, and so it, it's kind of self-defeating, which to your point, like secular humanism is self-defeating. Like there, there's no, there's no place to go that ends in anything good. Mm. Right. Right. And, and, and obviously people want to, con- and that's why like, you know, cause a lot of like, I mean, and again, like, I think these are interesting conversations, but you know, cultural Marxism, all that kind of stuff that, you know, these, these phrases that are being kind of tossed around. Well, it's like, you know, at least Marx, I'm not a Marxist, but like, (laughs) but at least Marx was like trying to like cure actual oppressed people. I mean, like the people were starving, you know, like Mm -hmm. the, the proletariat was very poor and the bourgeoisie was like incredibly well off. Right. And so I'm not a Marxist, but like I can imp. (laughs) <laughs> but I empathize with at least the problem Marx was trying to solve, right? Right. But if you keep that philosophy going, okay, in an age like ours where, you know, we've alleviated so much poverty and we've created this strong middle class, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where does the victimhood have to come from? And of course, like right now, it's psychology, right? It's the psychological self, right? So I yeah. feel it's it's like, are you hungry? Do you have adequate housing? Like, you know, are all your needs being met? Sure, <laughs> but like Donald Trump was elected and therefore like I can't go to school for a week. You know, that was happening on college campuses. Right. There, there was psychological oppression, mm. which like, it's interesting, like our grandfathers that like, you know, my, my grandfather like was in the Battle of the Bulge, like, you know, like, he actually had psychological oppression, you know, I mean, uh, and so, but of course, like you couldn't have it in. So again, some of the pushback is okay. I mean, again, there, 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 there has been, you know, some damage. And the way I've said it is like modernity, which the ethic of modernity is survival of the fittest. It, it is this strong pride. It's be strong. Right. And what if you're just not the fittest? What if you're just not the best? Like, like, Postmodernity was a necessary reaction to modernity. It's just this wacky, self-focused reaction it's the to pendulum modernity. pendulum swing to the other side. Right, yeah. Right. It, yeah, we've traded strong pride for weak pride. The problem is we didn't actually solve the real issue, which was pride, yeah. right? Yeah. And Correct. we are made with this God-shaped vacuum in our hearts and lives where we only really work if we're focused on the Lord. Um, when I, I love the all encompassing nature of following Jesus that, you know, there are these secular theories that have hints of truth in them. Right. But where do we go in the midst of that confusion of what, what, what do we follow? Well, we go to the Bible mm. because the Bible, I mean, I've always said to people, like one of the main reasons I'm a Christian is like the Bible makes sense of this world. Yeah, right? exactly. And, and so I need to double down on what God says about this world and what it is and who he is and who we are and ultimately what is the hope for humanity right that and and we see it in this passage i mean we're about to talk about the law but like 
the framing up is not, hey, let's dignify the oppressed and just leave her there. It's Jesus in the end saying, right. no, I have, you know, in your humility and recognizing that I'm your savior, now you have power. Right. Now you have strength to yeah, follow Yeah, Jesus me. doesn't say, man, glad that's over. Now you, now you can go back with your, right. you know, illicit lover. No, right. he says, look, go and sin no more. Be healed of this. Yeah. Um, and, and because you're rightly focused on my father's kingdom. Yeah, yeah. it's beautiful. All right, so, gosh, I feel like we've already talked about, like, two of the biggest things. Mm. But we've got two more huge things to talk about. Maybe we should shorten these, but the law. It's a big sermon. Okay, how do we deal with the... I told you it speaks to a lot of the things that we're talking about in public conversation. Yeah. yeah. How do we How do we uh, think about the law? Um, okay, and, and you brought up a good point. So I, obviously I talk about how do we administer the law um, and follow the law from a place of forgiveness, mercy, and grace or for self-justification. And obviously we talked about being you know, from the law, but, but okay. If, if we are following the law from a place of God's mercy, God's grace, Christ has uh, lived a righteous life. He has imputed righteousness to us. Um, how do we understand the law now? Are we supposed to stone adulterers? Like, like how do we, right. how do we deal with the actual laws that we see in the Bible? I, I, I don't know that maybe you and I have talked about this. Like I have some thoughts on this, but yeah, what, what do y'all have to say? I don't know that we well, didn't really prepare for this. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just, you know, from your sermon yesterday, you, you kind of you kind of read from Deuteronomy 22, 22, talking about, you know, stoning the adulterers and 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 then kind of went into a statement on how um, how we're to we're to keep the law or I, I forget how you mm-hmm. how you stated it exactly. But it could have been com- it could have been confusing. So I think a, a word of clarification on sermon talk back is appropriate that we're not trying to adhere to the old Testament mosaic law. Uh, so there's, there's definitely certain things in the mosaic law that Jesus, as you pointed out in your sermon, he said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So he did fulfill the law. And so now we are following Jesus. We're not following the law. Um, so, so maybe just a, a point of clarification, on that, I, I think is appropriate, but it's, I mean, it's interesting in this passage that the fair, that Jesus is like, he's basically turning, uh, you know, turning the tables on the Pharisees to say like, you brought her here in a way that's even against the law. Right. Uh, so there is all this law stuff that's going on in there, but the answer for her was, I mean, Jesus did not say like, you go and follow the law perfectly. He said, no, you're not condemned anymore. Go and sin no more. Uh, and so he, he's, he's releasing her from herself, you know, to, to, to now follow Jesus. And I don't know if we want to get into, you know, how this is a lot of people think this is Mary Magdalene, you know, and, and she was a, a great follower of Jesus or whatever, but assuming this woman had a repentant heart and began to follow Jesus at that point, but she's not, it, the instruction is not for her to go and adhere closely to the Mosaic law after this, after this time. So I don't know if you guys have further thoughts on, on, you know, the Mosaic law and how it comes into the new Testament and Jesus fulfilling that. Well, I mean, my personal thoughts are, so I, I love the way you said it, right? Like, but the way I would say it is when we follow Jesus, we are following the law in a sense, right? But we're rightly following the law. 
right? And so the law ultimately is given to point us to Christ. And as I was trying to kind of say yesterday, like it gives this incredible shape to our lives. So when we look to the Old Testament law, I mean, famously, again, this is John Calvin to quote him again, he kind of divvied the law up into the ceremonial law, um, the civil law, Mm-hmm. and the what's the third word um like the law that we're supposed to follow uh <laughs> the moral moral law yeah. yeah moral i thought it was another c um Could so be. ceremonial civil and then the moral law right so for example like uh the 10 commandments thou shalt not murder moral law now the problem with calvin's list is sometimes it's hard to tell like what of those is civil <clears throat> like is that a civil law or a moral yeah, yeah. law right? right right and so it's it's sometimes hard to kind of categorize those um, even some of the ceremonial, like Sabbath, is that moral or is that ceremonial, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, how do we understand which of those laws are? The way I would say it is a lot of laws repeat in the New Testament, mm-hmm. okay? Yep. And then the other thing I would say is all of the law, so, you know, I would still say, like, you should read the law. All of the law teaches us about the character of Christ. So even this law, like we appeal to in Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22, um, well, those laws are helpful in understanding like the seriousness of marriage, right? But I would say, but ultimately those laws in a civil way gave penalty and justice to the Jewish kind of system. But I still read them by saying, okay, like, you know, adultery comes with a very serious offense. One of the things that as a Christian, though, that I think is helpful to me. And again, you gotta, you gotta read this through the lens of the New Testament. God has given the authority of the sword to the government and not to the church, right? Mm-hmm. And so I would think as a Christian, if we lived in a society where adultery was a capital offense, we actually wouldn't say that's immoral. <laughs> You know, we would just say, oh, okay, you know, that's the what this society has decided is that offense. But we would say that we we obviously don't live in a society where uh, adultery is a capital offense. And so mm-hmm. it's not the job of the church because God hasn't given us the authority of the sword in, in the way that he gave, um, you know, Israel was a theocracy, right? right. It, it, they had the authority of the word and the sword. Um, and so because God hasn't given that to the church, we wouldn't obviously punish, uh, you know, an adulterer that way. But, but at the same time, being informed by those Old Testament laws, and I hope this is helpful, we would treat adultery in a very serious means, right? Uh, right? And so it, it is this like, okay, God, like, don't you see like actually what the Bible calls for here? This is how serious this is. So those are just some thoughts. And again, that's a bigger conversation, but yeah, Jordan, well, what are your- well, and, well, just to like, play it out then okay so ultimately the law and paul argues this in galatians the law was put in place to show us our inability to to follow god right right? to to be as holy as he calls us to be so ultimately the law should drive us to a sense of complete hopelessness apart from jesus which is it magnifies the grace that Jesus has offered, because if you think about the Sermon on the Mount, right, Jesus is telling them, actually, this this law back here of do not commit adultery, it actually even goes deeper than that. It's actually bigger. 
if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart, right? right. So he he actually increases the magnitude well, of he, this he holiness. Well, he points to the realness of the law. Like the law is not just there to stop this physical act; it's there to give us a pure heart, right? So we exactly. can know God, right? And, and so you know, again, ultimately, it points us to what we see in this passage, where it is only Jesus that actually gives us freedom to now delight in the law of the Lord and seek to follow it, right? Just like you said, I think it was a week or two ago, you know, the only sin that we can fight is a forgiven sin. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's the place we have to fight from because there is an inability that we have, but that doesn't mean that we don't seek to follow the law. And I think that's to your point, like that's that's the heart posture of a Christian. I'm always fascinated by how many times in particularly the Psalms, David talks about delighting in the law of the Lord, mm-hmm. right? Like he did not see the laws as constraining. Right. He loved them. Loved you know, them. Psalm yeah, 119. So did our Lord. I mean, I think yeah. that's the way you should understand Jesus too. And so I think like that, that is a, that is a real helpful reflection question for us as Christians. Do I delight in the law of the Lord? Are these things that I actually want to do? I want to follow God. And the only way that I can do that is believing that like Jesus says to this woman, there is there is no longer condemnation for my failure to keep the law. I now have forgiveness, and mm-hmm. so I can learn to delight in them. So so to to kind of sum it up so we're clear, there's parts of the Old Testament, like the ceremonial law, we're not trying to carry out sacrifices that are laid out very specifically. We obviously see that Jesus came and was the fulfillment of right. the whole sacrificial system. Right. Uh, so there are parts of the Old Testament that we would say we're not trying to add adhere to that part of the law. However, in the New Testament, there is this, this law of Christ that, I mean, there are certain boundaries and parameters that, that the law of Christ puts on us as believers that we actually find freedom within that. I, I always go back to Galatians 5 where mm-hmm. Paul says uh, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Yeah. Freedom does not mean the absence of all restraints. Right. Freedom means living within these these God-made boundaries right. and parameters. And within that, like we find incredible freedom and we find right relationships. You know, I always think about Jesus and how he said the the summation of all the law and the prophets is mm-hmm. two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. That was the purpose of the law. It's not just a checklist. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think we can see the law of Christ as that, that things in the New Testament that we follow as we're following Jesus, it's leading us into deeper relationship with God and with others. And in insofar as the law of Christ is leading us into these things, I think we're rightly seeing the law. Yeah, I think, you know, it's been talked about, too, the, the the purposes of the law. Like, one is, as you said, the law crushes us, right? The yeah. law the law shows us our sin, right? We wouldn't know what covetousness was were it weren't for the law. So the law, like, actually opens our heart to this big window that we are sinful, and, yeah. our, and it shows us our need for Christ. A second, then, uh, you know, use of the law is that actually it does provide like common grace. Like, you know, yes, the checklist is a burden, but the checklist does like keep people from like murdering people, right? And so mm-hmm. it's not how you should follow the law. This is kind of what I was talking about with the common virtue. 
but the law actually does give us this like common grace. Like it creates better behavior than we should have had. But, but the ultimate obedience comes when the law turns your heart toward the Lord. It's that yeah. delighting that you're talking about. Yeah. Mm. And when, when you, when from a place of love, I think, and I think this is kind of the from and the for, like when I realize that mm-hmm. God has loved me so much and that his intentions for me are good and that I love him, then from that place of love and receiving God's grace and receiving the kindness that God gives in the gospel, now I can delight in what he has said, not to achieve righteousness or not to like get heaven someday or not to like be seen as a moral person, but because I delight in what my father has said. Um, you know, I think, and, and that's really the posture that we should have toward the law, toward the word of God. Mm. Um, you know, if, uh, if back in the early days of, uh, when you were falling for Joe Beth mm. or when you were falling for Tally and, uh, she would have given you a letter and you haven't heard from her in a while. Let's say you hadn't heard from her and she gave you a letter, you know, you'd run home and you'd crack open that letter and it would just be this like thrilling thing to like hear from her. And if mm-hmm. she asked you to do something in the letter, it'd be like, oh man, mm-hmm. because that's flowing from your delight in her. You want to hear right. from her. And if she's asked you to do something, you want to do it because you want to serve her. And I think like that is really the, the it's a, a little analogy of the heart posture that we should have toward the things of the Lord. Again, not that like all the ceremonial law, but even like the ceremonial law, the sacrificial laws, et cetera, it's not that we're going out following them, but they are instructing us about, in some cases, about the sacrifice of Christ, mm-hmm. in some cases about the weight of sin. Sure. And so all of that becomes instructive for us at, from that place of forgiveness and grace that we have in Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, we were supposed to end with a note on age. Let's <laughs> save it, though. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, we'll save that for when we're a little older. We've, We've talk- had three, uh, talked three big topics. Yeah. Well, for Jordan Coughlin and Barrett Fisher, I'm Jason Hayes. Once again, thank you for listening to the Sermon Talkback podcast. If you have any other questions after listening, or if there's anything else you'd like to discuss with one of our pastors, please don't hesitate to engage our text the pastor line at 404-465-1737. And once again, if you'd like to find more resources from our church like this one, please visit ChristCovenant.com forward slash resources. Thank you and have a blessed week.